This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. The Ontario election has now come and gone, with the Doug Ford PCs having won an even larger majority than in 2018. When the Zoomer squad joined us on Monday, three days before the election, we were curious to know who of the four main party leaders was best reflecting the CARP 5 election issues important to older voters. And as a reminder, the CARP 5 election issues are fund better home care, transform long-term care, drastically cut wait times, make vaccines more accessible, and fund fitness for seniors. Going back in time before the election, here are David Kravitz, CARP's chief membership officer and vice president here at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer Magazine, and filling in for Bill Van Gorder, Anthony Quinn, CARP's Ontario election lead. I think this topic has become one of the top issues at the doors of Ontarians. And and we're very proud that the CARP 5 has resonated. We're in competition with a number of other very important issues, including affordability. The PCs are talking about highways and trying to get attention on that. But the healthcare issues and the top issues for CARP members, uh, I think they've been part of the discussion and we're very glad to see that. Let's start by talking about Stephen Del Duca, since the Liberal leader visited us here at the Zoomerplex on Saturday during Doors Open. Peter, how effectively is Stephen Del Duca reflecting the CARP 5? He nailed his... um his Vox Box uh, moment. I, I thought he did really well on that, and uh, you know he's he's he doesn't really come across you know as having leadership chops. And I thought his visit here, he sort of established himself as, yeah, I'm the man in charge of the Liberal Party. I have this, you know, I, I have the plan. You know, speak to me, and things will happen. And and that was important. I think that's what he wanted to establish uh, mostly from that visit was that you know uh, seniors' issues are important, and he. Uh, you know, he's a leader. He wants to become more of a prominent leader. And by, you know, visiting us, doing the Vox Box, doing the interview with Anthony and David, you know, touring the building, he, he sort of, uh, he, you know, he sort of gave off a leadership vibe, if I can say that. And uh, so so in that in that respect, um, I, I, I think it was quite important for him that uh, the Saturday morning visit. What is Andrea saying in, in terms of what she's committing to for the CARP 5? Well, she's big on you know, revamping long-term care. So she would, uh, like like uh, Del Duca, she would end the for-profit element of it and make it strictly um, public and non-profit delivered. So um, that's a big uh, delineation point from the Conservatives who want to keep the for-profit element in long-term care. And, of course, she, she would add 50,000 new long-term care beds. But um, that's sort of like, it, it, it's, I think that's the number that's been quoted as what we need. But again, to to get rid of the private care sector and then say we need 50,000 new beds, it just, um, she doesn't say how they're going to get to that number. So again, in David's sort of, 
a new paradigm of looking at political promises. Don't just look at the number, look at how they're going to get to that number. And she hasn't made a good case for explaining that. Other than that, hiring, you know, more personal support workers, it seems to be in keeping with what CARP would like to see in long-term care and what all the other provinces, what all the other um, parties are promising. Okay, let's go over to David for just a sec uh, with Doug Ford and the PCs. Um, Doug Ford hasn't said much about uh, issues around the CARP 5, but there is some commitment on issues important to older voters. He's been very... um bland and vague and um, agreeing generally with, uh, you know, with things, um, because I think he he wants an election done on the basis of overall managerial competence, you know, to get it done. Um, and then you can plug in whatever you, word you want into the word it. So if your priority is X, he's going to get it done. If your priority is Y, he's going to get it done. He isn't contradicting anything in the CARP-5. Um, he did show during COVID, uh, he had to, any premier would have, intense engagement with health care uh, for better or worse. So he did, you know, he, make, he made moves. He moved people around. He replaced people. So he was fully engaged uh, with the topic, certainly. He wasn't indifferent to it. And I think that he's well aware because we've also met with him and talked to him in the past, and he, he attended our, um, you know, our meeting, and uh, he's he's spoken uh, with us, and I think he's very aware of our position and engaged in it. We'll see how they do. David Kravitz, CARP's chief membership officer and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer Magazine, and Anthony Quinn, CARP's Ontario election lead. Now that the PCs have been re-elected, CARP members will continue to push the importance of these nonpartisan issues. You can find more information at carp.ca and join Zoomer Week in Review tomorrow after the noon news when Libby speaks with Anthony Quinn about the election results and what they mean for Zoomers. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Trudeau Liberals introduced new gun restrictions this past week, which put a freeze on the importing, buying, selling, or transferring of handguns. It's important to note the proposed legislation does not ban handguns outright, but seeks to cap the number already in Canada. The announcement came not long after two horrific mass shootings in the United States. In Buffalo, where 10 black people were shot and killed in what investigators say was a racist attack. And in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 young students and two teachers were killed. Libby talked about the new gun measures for Canada when she was joined on Tuesday by the Recovering Politicians panel. Michael Diamond is the principal of Upstream Strategy Group and was filling in for Lisa Raitt. Charles Souza is the former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. And Howard Hampton is a former leader of the Ontario NDP. We have had a, a mass shooting in Canada, and we do have serious problems with uh, illegal firearms in the country. And we have serious problems with guns that are, have nothing to do with hunting or anything like that, that were designed for the purpose of killing people. And I'm talking about assault rifles. We have these problems in Canada. I, I think the announcement of the legislation 
uh, in the aftermath of what happened at the school in Texas is not an accident. I, I think it was announced in conjunction with that in the hopes that it would get people's attention. But there is a very real problem in Canada. And, and if I may, I live in a border community. And in the spring and summer, we have literally tens of thousands of Americans who come across the border because they want to fish, they want to canoe, they want to hunt. And it's, it's a standing joke in my community that you'll have an SUV pull up at Canada Customs, and there'll be four people in the SUV, and we're all going fishing. And the customs officer will ask, you know that handguns are illegal in Canada. Do you have a handgun? No, no handguns. Would you mind opening the glove compartment? Open the glove compartment. What's that? Oh, that must be my, my, my wife's gun. Oh, I didn't know she was here. Uh, do you mind if you open the back of the SUV? What's that at the bottom there? Oh, it's another, though, that, that must be my wife's other gun. It's a standing joke that you'll find many times in one vehicle, three handguns. And, and not all of those handguns go back to the United States when the trip is over. Charles, what do you think? Do you think that maybe we, you know, look at what's happening there too much as, as if it's almost happening here? Well, the trends are, are worsening. I mean, we've had some, obviously, uh, very unfortunate circumstances in mosques and so forth. It's uh, yeah. it happened in Canada. Not to the same extent, obviously, but I get it. We're going after handguns and assault uh, weapons. And other jurisdictions around the world that have had greater restrictions have substantively less cases. I mean, the United States had over 115 cases last year. All of Europe, including Canada, was less than 50. So some countries were like three or four or eight or so forth. And Canada has had its, its, its share as well, and it's rising. But this, the notion of going after assault weapons and handguns, I mean, and Trudeau is saying he's not going after existing owners. He's going after uh, activities thereafter. So you no longer can buy and sell. You can't transport and all those things. I mean, of course, it's going to affect the existing owners who are legitimate and have taken precautions to keep them hidden. But if I just look at what's happening in other parts of the world where they are more strict, they have less cases. And that's the bottom line to all this. Well, yeah. You, I mean, talk, you it, talk to a family, you talk to parents who were gun owners, and they were there fighting for their for their amendment, their rights to, to hold a gun, are now saddened by what's happened to their own kids. And that's the problem. Michael, and, uh, let's let's you hear know, your take on it. Uh, lost to add first, you know, uh, glad to hear Howard talk about Kenora. I practically grew up there, so I'm now feeling a bit homesick. But uh, I don't think the Americanization of the gun debate in Canada is helpful. You know, the problem here is illegal firearms being used uh, illegally. So that will not be addressed by uh, what the Prime Minister uh, is setting out to accomplish. What we need to do is really uh, increase the powers for both the search and seizure for Canada Post. Uh, we need to do it for border agents. We need to provide them the ability to, uh, to to confiscate, to take vehicles, to question, uh, and make sure that we stop the flow of illegal guns into this country, which are then going to be used uh, illegally. So I think, you know, uh, what was announced yesterday is almost like taking a bath uh, to a, uh, a, a bath to a fruit fly. We need to be much more strategic to actually weed out the problem here. Michael Diamond, principal of Upstream Strategy Group, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, and Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. 
Coming up after the break, are delays at Pearson Airport here to stay? We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. A day after various leaders in Mississauga demanded an end to COVID protocols at Pearson Airport because of lengthy delays for passengers, the federal liberals extended the border restrictions until at least the end of June. There are differing opinions on why many air travelers are experiencing long wait times. But the federal transport minister, Omar Al-Gabra, insists it's not because of COVID protocols. He points to other international airports ports where there are no public health restrictions and says their waits are just as long or longer. So what's going on, especially in light of travel volumes, which are half of what they were before the pandemic? On Tuesday, Libby asked this question of a panel of experts, Zanetta Rochemont of Cruz Holidays of Clarkson, John Graddock, faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal and a former executive with Air Canada, and Trevor McPherson, president and CEO of the Mississauga Board of Trade. Well, I, I certainly appreciate the position that the minister is in um, dealing with this issue and, and certainly Staffing um, has has a good deal uh, to contribute to, to the problem, um, but it's not the the only issue. And what we're hearing from um, our friends at the airport at Pearson is that it's also about um, duplicative uh, screening uh, procedures, um, the continuation of random testing at the airport on site um, when there probably are other options um, close to the airport, if not on site. Um, as well as is creating, um, you know, additional uh, pressures on the system. Uh, everybody's dealing with staffing issues uh, right across industry. That's uh, that's not not a surprise, and and we're <coughs> glad that the federal government is is taking action uh, in terms of bringing on some additional CATSA um, screening officers. Um, but we we do feel that um, the random testing at the airport. Uh, as well as some of the duplication in procedures uh, are a couple of, of things that can be addressed right away um, to deal with the current um, the current backlog of passengers. It's really affecting, you know, it's not only affecting Canadians that are looking to, to travel abroad and, and, and their return, but, but also a number of our business members that are doing business in, in other markets and their customers expect um, that their, their folks will arrive for their meetings, etc., uh, on time, or maybe it's servicing a, a product or what have you, and that's having a, a real impact on on our um, on our businesses here. And then the other oh, part of it too is the ongoing issue um, related to the reputation that, yeah. that we're um, putting out there to potential investors. John Graddock, uh, you know, the last time we spoke, the staffing levels were at ninety percent, and the passenger load was only at seventy percent. Well, you know, I think that what's happening in these days is that, you know, we're, we basically put too much traffic into the airport, uh, by the carriers and, and they're not recognizing that there is a staffing issue at the airport. I think that, you know, as much as we have those 400 agents that are currently in training by CATSA, it's important to understand that this training is not going to be an instantaneous fix 
to the problems we're having at Pearson or any other airport in Canada, you know, I want to make sure that those people coming out of the CATSA training program are not rushed through training just to get warm bodies at the airport. I think, you know, we need to make sure that these people are doing a great job of training. It's going to take time to get these people through CATSA training. And we want to make sure that they do their job they're supposed to be doing when they get to the airport. I think the issue is still the the airlines are just throwing too much capacity at the airport without recognizing that there are constraints at the airport, both in terms of staffing as well as procedures. And these procedures aren't new. Now, we've been doing this protocol testing and these and these things for, for months. And it's not something that, you know, as anybody has any, as as nobody's looked at having these processes change. So they're a new reality. So the capacity at the airport has come down. And the, air, the airlines are just throwing more and more seats and more and more passengers at a problem. And it's going to get worse. Zanetta Rochmo, is is that how you see it? You're in the cruise business. People often have to fly to their cruises, and if they uh, don't get there on time, that's a big problem. Uh, it absolutely is, Libby. And um, yes, so on our end, what we have been constantly advising our clients is to please fly to your cruise destination port a day early, give yourself enough time because, uh, you know, stressing over whether or not you're going to make it on the cruise ship, um, you know, is not the way to start a vacation. Because these problems are current. They are, you know, they are everywhere. They're not just here. It starts in Pearson. But, you know, you can get caught in, in that kind of situation in Europe or elsewhere in the world. Zanetta Rochemont of Cruise Holidays of Clarkson, John Graddock, faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal and a former executive with Air Canada, and Trevor McPherson, president and CEO of the Mississauga Board of Trade. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine is into a fourth month. While more Ukrainian citizens make the decision to move to faraway countries like Canada to begin a new life. 306 of these individuals arrived on the second of three federally chartered flights in Montreal this past Sunday, and another plane of Ukrainian refugees arrived in Halifax on Thursday. But there are others who are making their way here on less high-profile flights, some with no place to go when they get here. So what is being done to assist these individuals upon arrival? While filling in for Libby on Monday, I was joined by Peter Storin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto branch. I asked him about that, as well as how many Ukrainians are arriving every day. Very hard to uh, to, to know for sure, uh, but we definitely know that there are, uh, on, uh, especially from flights from Poland, uh, they come in daily. Uh, you, you're, roughly, you're looking at probably around 100 people per day. Just on that one flight, uh, they're coming from other countries as well, from Germany, from Hungary. Um, but unfortunately, we don't get that those statistics uh, from the government. They don't really tell us, uh, although they would know how many visas are being issued. But uh, the numbers seem to be getting uh, greater now as uh, people settle into situations and and are making the move uh, to Canada. I'm wondering. I'm wondering if it's a bit misleading, you know, these three federally chartered flights. It almost makes it seem as if these are the only Ukrainian refugees arriving. No, no, there's way more than that. I mean, uh, there's over, uh, well over uh, um, 
70,000 visas that have already been issued. We know there's over 200,000 applications. Now, not everyone's going to come. Uh, some people are just going to try to get their visas just in case. But we we know that in Ontario alone, the last number we heard, there was already over 10,000 uh, Ukrainians that har- arrived. So the numbers are quite fast. We know it. We see it. Uh, we're kind of reaching capacity because to a large extent, most of the people that came in the the first month or two, they came to friends and family. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're starting to see people coming without any direct friends and family, maybe have some financial ability to rent a place for a very short period of time. But as you can appreciate, most of these people are not very wealthy and they're going to run into situations where if in a week or two they don't have somewhere to stay more medium term, um, they're going to be left out on the street. And we're finding those situations uh, almost every day now. And we're doing our very best to address it as much as we can without very much assistance from the federal government, unfortunately. Well, right. I mean, and that that's the next question. How exactly are you doing this with these people arriving who maybe are able to uh, stay in a motel for a week or two and that's it? It's really just through the goodwill of people. Uh, and many Ukrainians, of course, but uh, all kinds of people are reaching out and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Estonians, Polish people, back backgrounds, um, Canadians of all walks of life are actually offering uh, places. And we're working with that. We're working with one uh, agency called COSTI that's helping us vet these places because you, you can appreciate we have to do criminal background mm-hmm. checks if you don't know the people. But to a large extent, we're also working with our churches. People in our church community are coming out and say, look, I've got a basement uh, apartment and there's room for a couple of people. Uh, They're welcome to stay. So we're doing our very best to address that. We're also working with the federal government because they did promise that they would offer up to three weeks lodging um, with arrivals that have no, no place to stay. Unfortunately, the bureaucracy, they announced it a month ago, but we still yet to have that being offered um, to to the arrivers uh, Right now, Peter, also, there is now a website for Ukrainian refugees with resettlement information about Canada. Uh, How are they finding out about that? And what does this website offer? Well, this website is uh, a living document. We keep uh, updating. It's uh, Dopomoha, which is Ukrainian word for help. D-O-P-O-M-O-H-A dot C-A. And there you have basically all the resources that have been uh, announced, federal, provincial government. So we're doing our very best to make it a kind of one-stop shopping place for people looking for assistance when they arrive. So it's in both languages. It's in Ukraine. There's a Ukrainian version and English version. And uh, we're getting, obviously, positive feedback from that. And as I say, we keep updating as new things are being announced. Peter Sturin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto branch. For more information and to find out how to help, go online to ucc.ca. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Mary in London phoned before the Ontario election to remind fellow voters about her concerns. I can't believe how people are forgetting what Doug Ford did and, and didn't do during the pandemic. And also the Bill 124, they're forgetting, like it's only 1%. They're forgetting that when he took over in 2018, he voted himself and his cabinet a 33% raise, and uh, an MPP confirmed that. I will not believe Doug Ford never will, never will, will. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Jeff in Port Perry, who phoned about delays at Pearson Airport. There's definitely a lot of duplication in the, the number of times we're asked to show our passport and do security checks. Um, what I'm not finding is that the COVID protocols are not a hindrance to me as a traveler at all. Where I find the roadblocks are, first of all, the, the issue of cancelling flights at the last minute. We just came back from Honduras. And we had to rebook our flight three times well, because the airlines kept canceling. It was insane, and it took us an extra day to get home. So there's some inherent problems there that I don't think are really related to COVID. I think it's just poor management and poor planning. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416 367 9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.